Could Kanye West and Kim Kardashian be the reason Donald Trump wins re-election in 2020? Could Donald Trump be on the verge of winning the Nobel Peace Prize? Should a hospital be allowed to hold your sick child hostage and force you to stand by helplessly as they pull the plug and wait for your baby to die? Is it time for you to rethink your relationship with big internet companies like Google, Facebook, and Yahoo? And what do the Ku Klux Klan and today's Antifa protesters have in common? We're going to talk about it here on the American Culture Podcast. Welcome to episode four of the American Culture Podcast. I am Earl B., the creator and host of this podcast. And today we're going to talk about five current news stories that are shaping American culture. Kanye West's relationship with Donald Trump. Donald Trump's chances at the Nobel Peace Prize. The very real dangers of government-run health care. Facebook, email, and online privacy. And one way in which today's Antifa protesters are no different from the Ku Klux Klan. Plus, I'll have a couple of quick-hitting honorable mention topics that don't quite make the top five stories this week. I am so glad you have taken the time to join us. Now, before I dive into the topics for this week, I just want to say a quick word about the format of today's episode. If you've heard the podcast before and heard either of our episodes, either on the Parkland shooting and the Second Amendment, or on Donald Trump's border wall and uh, immigration control, you'll know that those episodes were very heavily researched and pretty tightly scripted uh, episodes. By contrast, today's going to be a lot more casual, a lot more informal. I've, I've gathered a stack of papers here on some top stories of the week that we're going to kind of adopt a more conversational tone here for this episode uh, as we kind of work our way through my thoughts on, on some of these top stories and, and stories that I think you uh, you know, should be paying attention to because I think they're going to be important uh, down the line. I will certainly periodically have episodes uh, like the first couple that were very uh, highly researched and, and tightly scripted, but the format of today's show will probably be uh, the format we'll see most often going forward for the podcast. It's uh, uh, they're quicker to produce; they, they don't take us quite quite as many hours to uh, to. Uh, research and write and get ready to uh, to go on the air. So this is probably the type of, of episode you'll see going forward. If you have any thoughts or feedback about the different types of formats for the podcast, please don't be shy about dropping a comment on the webpage or on our Facebook page or even via email. So now let's jump into our five stories for this week. The first is Kanye West and Donald Trump. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never been a, a Kanye West guy. Okay, his music isn't classic rock. It's not my my style. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the Kardashian clan, which he is now uh, you know married into. So I, I don't pay a lot of con attention to Kanye West in the past, and I kind of have loaded him in with all the Hollywood lefty liberal music industry types um, that we all know so well. But I was amused, stunned, and perhaps mildly inspired over the last week or so 
to see uh, Kanye West popping up on Twitter, of all places. Not that he does isn't on Twitter all the time because he is. Uh, with some thoughts about uh, the President Trump that were not uh, from the usual disparaging, ridiculing, criticizing place that uh, leftists usually address uh, the president from. Kanye West had a couple of, uh, you don't even want to say kind things, just neutral things to say about the president. And that and really shook up uh, the leftosphere. Uh, the progressives were kind of losing their minds over, you know, one of their own venturing out into this land of uh, uncharted, independent thought. Kanye tweeted on uh, April 25th. He said, you don't have to agree with Trump, but the mob can't make me not love him. We are both dragon energy. He is my brother. I love everyone. I don't agree with everyone, everything anyone does. That's what makes us individuals. And we have the right to independent thought which is not a radical notion, the idea that we have a right to independent thought. It's just kind of a radical notion coming from someone on the left. You know, the left is kind of vested in this idea that we don't have the right to independent thought, that we can only think the way they think about any given topic, and that anybody who thinks differently than the way they think about a topic, you know, is an enemy of the people and needs to be ridiculed, harassed, terrorized, and forced from the public square. So to hear... Um, you know, a, a staunch member of the the lefty uh, establishment speaking out about the right to have independent thought was pretty refreshing. Again, not not uh, not a revolutionary idea, but certainly revolutionary coming from the left, and uh, it got a lot of attention. You know, Kanye has millions and millions of Twitter followers, and it got a lot of attention. And he wasn't done yet. He went on to tweet uh, on the 27th of April. He said, I haven't done enough research on conservatives to call myself or be called one. I'm just refusing to be enslaved by monolithic thought. And that's interesting, the use of the word enslaved, because, you know, uh, people say disparagingly about black and minority voters that uh, the liberals expect them to stay on the quote-unquote liberal plantation. Um, and anybody that strays off of that gets harshly criticized for you know going against quote unquote their people and you can look at any number of black conservatives over the years who have been mercilessly attacked by uh by black americans uh for having thought that doesn't didn't line up with the democratic party line and kanye wasn't done yet uh, he tweeted out a photo of him with a couple of guys who i don't know who the fellows are in the picture but kanye is wearing a red make america great again ball cap you know, typical Donald Trump hat. Later on, he tweeted, somehow, I, I missed it in the story, but somehow he uh, he ended up with an autographed by Donald Trump, Make American Great hat. And uh, not long after that, after he posted the, the autographed hat, we've got uh, Chance the Rapper chiming in. And I don't know Chance the Rapper, but he certainly got his 15 minutes of fame this week because he tweeted back at, uh, uh, at Kanye, Black people don't have to be Democrats. And again, that's kind of a heretical opinion on the left these days. But the idea that blacks don't have to be Democrats is uh, um, perhaps it's opening some minds. Um, and then not to not to uh, leave Kanye out there on the the branch, the tree limb, all by himself. His wife, Kim Kardashian West. Again, I'm not a fan of Kim Kardashian. Um, 
I respect her business acumen because she certainly has turned um, whatever it is she does into a, an empire. Uh, makes a lot of money off Twitter and Facebook and whatnot. So Kim got out there with uh, her own tweet uh, saying, now when he, talking about her husband, spoke about Trump, most people, including myself, have very different feelings and opinions about this. But this is his opinion. I believe in people being able to have their own opinions, even if really different from mine. He never said he agrees with his politics. So Kim Kardashian coming out in a very, very public way, you know, on free thought, independent thought, free speech. Now you say, you know, what's the big deal uh, about all this? Well, the big deal is that, uh, you know, the Democratic Party has counted on having almost all black voters in America voting Democrat in every election for decades now, ever since the 1960s. And it's been kind of a fact of life if you were running as a Republican for office, that you were going to get basically zero votes from African-Americans in support of your candidacy. But the mathematics are such that if just a small percentage of black voters and other minorities were to vote for Trump in 2020, it would be a landslide. Trump has been working to appeal to those voters. He's been trying to be proactive on issues of concern in our urban areas, such as crime and jobs and education. He famously won some key states in the Rust Belt in the 2016 election. If he can hold serve on the places that he actually had success in 2016 and widen his appeal just a little bit, he'll get reelected. And here we have Kanye West and Kim Kardashian going out there and very publicly giving people on the left and minorities in particular, you know, the, the idea that they can think independently about politics. They don't have to be Republicans or excuse me. They don't have to be Democrats. They can be Trump supporters or not. They can have their own thoughts, ideas, and God forbid, even speak their mind about their thoughts and opinions on politics. And if, you know, if West and Kardashian speaking out were to somehow make you know, free thinking, cool. You know, what if being an independent thinker truly becomes avant-garde? What if it becomes subversive to vote Republican, even a little bit rebellious? I know this is crazy talk, but what if we were ever to get to the point where it was actually okay for a black man or woman to vote Republican? As I said, if the GOP were able to earn even just 10% of black votes, it would be a total game changer. I won't hold my breath for that, but props to Kanye for taking a stand for free thought and free speech. And this is a topic, you know, we're going to keep an eye on here at the American Culture Podcast because that would be a big change in the American political landscape if uh, black voters and minority voter, other minority voters um, were really up for grabs in any given election. If, if the parties truly had to compete on ideas for the votes of those constituencies, that would be tremendous, a tremendous step forward for those voters and for our country. So the next topic I want to get to is uh, Donald Trump and Korea and the Nobel Peace Prize. You know, I don't know if you've been if you've been watching the news this week, but um, there's been a lot of amazing activity going on uh, on the Korean Peninsula. I don't know if you've watched the Winter Olympics at all, but it, it didn't get as much play as I thought it should, but when North Korea 
at the last minute, really, decided that they were going to send athletes to the Winter Olympics that were held in South Korea this last, was it February? I, I believe it was. I, I thought that was a huge deal. I mean, North Korea has been a, you know, completely walled off, isolated black hole, you know, for the people that live there for so long. I thought it was very significant when they said, no, hey, South Korea, instead of trying to start a war during your Olympics or somehow try to ruin your Olympics, uh, which would have been in keeping with the rhetoric coming out of North Korea for the last 50 years, they instead chose to send their athletes to the Olympic Games. Now, they didn't fare particularly well. Um, I don't believe North Korea has competed much in international sports in the last, again, 50 years or more. Um, so their athletes aren't, weren't really up to it. But the fact that they showed up and they competed, that they were embraced by the South Korean team because they've competed as a unified team, was a remarkable, hopeful sign, I thought. And then, in the last week or so, um, the North Korean leader, the South Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, and the president of South Korea had a summit. Um and they agreed at that summit, the leaders of North and South Korea, this is a, a CNN article, have committed themselves to the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula and pledged to bring a formal end to the Korean War 65 years after hostilities ceased. And that's remarkable. That's a war that was 10 or 15 years old when I was born. I was born in 1964, and for my whole life, there's been a ceasefire on the Korean Peninsula between North and South, the demilitarized zone there, many, many, many American troops on high alert at all times over the, the course of these 65 years, because it was the, the state of things over there right now is just a pause. It's just a literally pause button on the war. They agreed to a ceasefire, but they never formally ended the war with a peace treaty. And it's been that way for forever. And Donald Trump, despite his bluster, or perhaps because of his bluster, you know, has pushed back on the North Korean leader, has taken very seriously when the North Korean leader has gotten um, out of bounds with nuclear testing or other um, hostile activity. Uh, Donald Trump has taken on the bully and uh, perhaps bullied back on the bully. And instead of that whole thing blowing up, it seems to have brought the bully to the bargaining table. And this summit, this, this, this tentative agreement that they're going to start negotiating toward a formal end to the Korean War is astonishing, uh, truly astonishing. And, and that Donald Trump would be the agent of this change is remarkable. And he is the agent of that change. Um, I'm sure there are people who are not going to want to give him credit. That's why we're you know, going to get on the record right here and give it to him. Even German Chancellor Angela Merkel, uh, who doesn't see eye to eye with Trump on much, says that Trump's actions with North Korea and Kim Jong-un are the equivalent to Reagan getting Gorbachev to tear down the Berlin Wall. That's, that's according to, to Merkel. You know, and why now? Why would, why would Kim Jong-un come to the table now? I mean, he's, he's still a murderous thug. Um, you know, so why why would we have hope of this? And the, the one thing I latch on to, you know, other than maybe the sanctions that that the Western 
powers have placed on North Korea over the years are maybe they're finally starting to bite to the point that he just can't ignore them anymore. Um, maybe his political position is getting uh, untenable in the country. We don't know. Maybe he realizes that if he were to actually end this war and, and allow Korean families who have been divided by the war to reunite, that he would be an even greater hero to his people than he, he is already. The one thing that I latch onto though is that he has spent some time in the West as a child, you know, middle school, high school age. He spent a few years in Switzerland, as far as anyone can tell, attending school there. So this is a guy who, rather than being stuck behind the border walls there in Korea, he has been out to the West and he's he's had a chance to get a taste of it, to meet people there, to know people there, to understand the cultures a little bit. Um, you know, he's famously an, an NBA basketball fan and is friends with Dennis Rodman, formerly of the Chicago Bulls. You know, so my, my hope is that somehow that that knowledge of the West leads him to be perhaps more trusting or more desirous of, of peace than his predecessors have been. But it's it's an astonishing, astonishing feat. And, I, and if it comes to fruition, um, I think Donald Trump deserves a Nobel Prize. You know, this the the Korean War ended in July. It didn't end. That's the whole point here. The the armistice, that ceasefire, was was put in place in July of 1953, almost 65 years ago. And since that time, since 1953, we've had how many presidents? Let's count them. Dwight David Eisenhower, you know, didn't achieve an end to the Korean War. John F. Kennedy didn't end the Korean War. Lyndon Baines Johnson not only did not end the Korean War, he ramped up the Vietnam War. Richard M. Nixon was able to end the Vietnam War, but did not end the Korean War. Gerald Ford was not able to end the war. Jimmy Carter, who won himself a Nobel Prize for his efforts at peace around the world um, when he was president, wasn't able to bring about an end to the Korean War. Ronald Reagan, who won the Cold War, who brought down the Berlin Wall, um, who was snubbed for a Nobel Peace Prize, even though he brought down the Soviet Union and brought down the Berlin Wall. He didn't end the Korean War. George Herbert Walker Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama, who did win a Nobel Prize for peace, even though he had not done anything yet to deserve it, you know, he had eight years in office as president, um, supposedly such an amazing international negotiator and diplomat. He didn't end the Korean War, but it looks like there's a chance that Donald Trump could end the Korean War. And if he's able to do that after 65 years, after many, many presidents have failed to bring about that, if he could bring about the, re the denuclearization of that peninsula, the reunification of these families, a potential reunification of the countries, um, he should get he should get the uh, the Nobel Prize for Peace. Now, the committee that hands out that prize is a very left leaning committee. Okay, they gave it to Barack Obama just basically for getting elected. Okay, it was on hope. He won it in two thousand nine. He'd been in office for you know basically weeks at that point, and even he admitted in his acceptance speech he hadn't done anything yet to deserve it. Al Gore was awarded a Nobel Peace Prize for his works, you know, spreading his gospel about so-called man-made global warming. You know, and as I said, Ronald Reagan, who 
who defeated the Soviet Empire, brought down the Berlin Wall, he didn't get the Nobel Peace Prize. So, you know, it's it would not be a shoe-in by any stretch. Uh, the, the, the Nobel Committee might well give the prize to the North Korean dictator, who's a murderous, you know, thug, rather than give it to Donald Trump, to be honest with you. But, and there's a long way to go. You know, we've been down this road. Uh, the North Koreans have made promises and then not kept them. They promised they're going to do denuclearization. They've, you know, they've made many promises over the years and and not kept them. But it's a very auspicious start. Um, we wish everybody involved the best, and 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 we hope for success here. And it's a it's a story that we should all be watching um, as it moves forward. So the next story we want to talk about is um, baby Alfie Evans. Can you imagine this? This is over in the UK. It's not in America, but it's a warning to us in America about what to be careful of as we move through Obamacare or whatever the next socialized medical scheme the Democrats try to try to foist upon us. You can't turn over the well-being of your family to the government and wash your hands of it. Uh, Alfie Evans was a young child who had been ill and in a semi-vegetative state in, an, in a UK hospital since December of 2016. And recently, doctors decided there was no, there was no hope of young Alfie Evans recovering, and therefore the, thing, the proper thing to do medically was to remove life support and let him die a natural death. You know, which is fine. A doctor can have that recommendation, and if the family's willing to go along, that's fine. We, we do this all the time. It, usually it's end of life. Sometimes it's children. Children get sick, especially, you know, pre, uh, you know, premature births. These things happen. It's a decision for, for doctors and for families. But what's happened in the UK is it's no longer a decision for families. The family gets no say. If the doctors decide it's time for a patient, in this case, a, a baby to die, the baby is going to die. And the family wanted to remove, you know, disagree with the doctors. Thought there was a chance uh, that that the baby could be could be saved or should it should be could be helped. They found willing partners to that end in in Italy. Italy actually granted young Alfie Italian citizenship, entitling him to health care under the Italian system. And the family w- wanted to take their their baby out of the hospital, transport it to Italy to seek care. And the doctors and the hospital refused to release their child. So now we have a hostage situation. The doctor and the hospital, against the will of the parents, were holding this child hostage. The family goes to court, seeks a court order that the child should be released to them so that they can go seek treatment somewhere else from some doctors that believe they could help the baby and the court. And this is astonishing. The court said no. It is in the best interest of the child. It's in young baby Alfie's best interest that he be taken off life support and allowed to die. And that's astonishing to, to say it's in the child's best interest that we kill it. And the family exhausted every legal recourse available to them as a family. The child was, the, you know, the plug was ordered to be pulled. It was pulled. And Alfie defied the medical doctor's predictions, he didn't die right away. 
He lived for five days, breathing on his own, very labored, very difficult, breathing, breathing on his own for five days. He lived so long that they had to restart feeding him through, through a feeding tube because he was living longer than they predicted he would once life support was withdrawn. And again, rather than allowing the family, when Alfie's defying the odds and, and still living, rather than allowing the family to transport him, to take him somewhere where doctors were willing to try to help him, they told the family, no, you cannot do this. You have to leave your child here, and he's going to be permitted, quote-unquote, forced to die. And in the last couple of days, Alfie Evans did die, murdered by the state. No, no, no less of a murder and not legally a, a murder under the law because it's permitted. If it's permitted under the law, it's not a murder. But no less a murder than putting an assassin, you know, a convicted murderer to death with lethal injection on, on death row. And what's the, you know, what's to be made of all this? Well, first of all, paging Sarah Palin, right? Everybody ridiculed Sarah Palin when she predicted that Obamacare, government-run health care, would lead to death panels. Well, that's what happened in the UK. The doctors have their meetings and they decide, well, we just can't afford to keep providing care to this particular patient. Um, that patient now needs to die. And it's one thing to say, we're gonna, we can't render care. We're going to withdraw care and then allow the family, if they choose, to seek care elsewhere. That would be morally defensible. But to say, no, you can't take your own child and seek care elsewhere um, is murder to me. And um, it reminds me, the story reminds me of uh, a quote that I had thought was a Ronald Reagan quote. And I went to confirm that and I couldn't find it to Ronald Reagan, which made me really question my own powers of uh, recall. Um, but this quote is attributed to Barry Goldwater and Gerald Ford, among others. It's older than, than either of those gentlemen. But the quote is, and I could have swear that I heard Ronald Reagan say it more than once. Any government big enough to give you everything you want is big enough to take away everything you have. And that was, you know, a Republican conservative politicians way of saying, be careful if you keep handing over your life to the, to the government and expect them to take care of everything, then they're going to make, start making the decisions about your life. And this is what they had. You know, they gave, you know, they were getting free health care from the government of the, of the United Kingdom which is, you know, terrific while it lasts, but it's big enough to take away everything you have. And in this case, everything you have meant this family's baby, their son, you know, a government that's big enough to give you free healthcare cradle to grave is big enough to take away your baby's life if they decide to. So again, a cautionary tale that's not here in America yet, but there are those that want that. They want our healthcare system to be just like Great Britain's, just like all these great socialist utopias out there where everybody who has means leaves to come to America to get healthcare. You know, does our healthcare system need fixing? Does it, could it be improved? Yes, 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 of course. Uh, tinker around the edges, you know, fix some of the gaps that do exist, but don't throw the whole privatized system out, although we've, you know, Obama tried to do that. You can't throw the whole thing out and try and fill it all back in with, with government-run health care. The government can't run a daycare center, let alone the 
entire medical care system for every American and every non-American that happens to, to find their way here. So that's the story of Alfie Evans, and it's a sad one. It's a downer, but um, you should be aware of it. You should be aware of it. The next one I want to talk about, the next story today, number four, is Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and online privacy in general. You know, uh, there was quite a scandal in the last, you know, couple of weeks about Facebook allowing uh, this data analytics firm, Cambridge Analytica, to access data from some of their users by putting an app on Facebook and when people opted in, as you always do, hey, if you want this app, you have to click here to give us permission to like get all your information. And in the case of Facebook, clicking here says, not only can you have my information, but you can have all the information I have in my Facebook profile about all of my friends as well on Facebook. So Cambridge Analytics did this during the 2016, mostly during the primary season. Um, and some of the some of the analysis that was achieved was used by the Trump campaign and, and some of what they were doing in the primary part of the, the 2016 campaign. Now, by the time the general election rolled around, the, the, after the nomination had been secured, the Trump campaign had dropped this company because they didn't find that the that the analysis that they were providing was particularly helpful or useful to them. But there was a connection between Cambridge Analytics and uh, the Trump campaign, which led to a political firestorm, of course. How dare Facebook cooperate you know, with the evil Donald Trump and its campaign and, and their campaign against the fair Hillary Clinton? Um, the comedy of the whole thing, of course, was that when it was a scandal that Facebook should allow a firm affiliated with Donald Trump to have access to any data at all on Facebook users or anything that might help them in any way in their campaign. You know, President Obama's campaign was was praised high and low for being geniuses in the innovative and and uh, brilliant ways in which they exploited Facebook and Facebook data to help their campaign in 2012. And uh, people forget that. And they and, and I've been in researching uh, for today's podcast. I found the stories. There's two stories, basically, that you can read out there. One story says, "Yeah, there's some minor differences in the details between what Obama did in 2012 and what Cambridge Analytics did in uh, 2016, but really, substantially, it's the same thing. And in fact, Obama probably did it better." And reached, you know, and had more data on more people than what uh, Cambridge Analytica ever did. So there's the stories that say, yeah, pretty much the same thing, you know. So you you need to be honest and 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 consistent about this. And then there's a series of stories that are in denial that claim that you know some of these very nuanced differences between what was happening somehow made it okay uh, for the Obama campaign to be engaged in it, and for uh, and and not okay for the. Trump campaign to be engaged in it. But I found one great quote uh, in an article that uh, says that uh, Carol Davidson, the former director of integration of media analytics for the Obama for America campaign in 2012, put out a series of tweets when she was looking, you know, talking about her time in the 2012 campaign. And she said in these tweets, quote, Facebook was surprised we were able to suck out the whole social graph, but they didn't stop us once they realized that was what we were doing. 
They came to our campaign office in the days following the election and were very candid that they allowed us to do things they wouldn't have allowed someone else to do because they were on our side. So you can read the articles that claim that somehow Trump's use of this data and Cambridge Analytica's use of this data was um, worse than something Obama did. But the reality is quite similar. And the reality is Facebook opened the vault for the Obama campaign in 2012 and did everything they could to help them win that election. And that Trump received no help from Facebook, but they did have access to some data. And it you know, led to this huge scandal because, of course, anybody that would help Trump with anything is you know, public enemy number one. And it was amusing to watch Mark Zuckerberg up on Capitol Hill uh, sitting uh, basically on top of a phone book <laughs> at the chair at the witness table and uh, answering questions from Congress. Turns out you see other stories that the, the congressmen who were sitting there asking him questions have all received many thousands of dollars in donations from Facebook. So you wonder how uh, how serious the congressmen were about grilling uh, Zuckerberg. I knew someone who told me once when I was younger and perhaps a little more naive, uh, we were t- I was talking about you know hearings on Capitol Hill, congressional hearings, and how oh the, you know that'll lead to the truth. We'll find out what happened when they have the hearing on Capitol Hill. And this gentleman, a mentor of mine, uh, looked at me and said, "No, the hearings on Capitol Hill are not about the search for truth." Hearings on Capitol Hill are purely political theater. They're just there to make the congressmen look good, you know, to help their reelection bid or to make them look good to their donors or whatever. Purely political theater. There is no search for truth going on in any public congressional hearing that you might watch. But this whole this whole um, this whole scandal led to a little a, a mini campaign. Hashtag, hashtag delete Facebook. You might have seen it. Um, and hopefully it's causing people to rethink their relationship with, you know, Facebook and Google and Yahoo and so forth. I know it has me. Um, I've, the thing that finally got me, I've, I've, been, I've had a Yahoo email account since 2002. I think Yahoo was pretty new on the block then. I'm not sure exactly why I picked them. I had, had, a couple of email accounts before then, but I latched onto this this free, you know, Yahoo webmail thing, which was pretty exciting back then. And it's an email account I've been using up until t- a couple of days ago, really. It's kind of by default ended up to be the, the account I tend to use for planning travel. If I book airline tickets or hotels or anything like that for a trip we're going to take, I kind of do that out of my yahoo.com email account and have for, for many years. But I noticed I don't know, about a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, I was reading some of my daily deluge of emails in my Yahoo account because when you have an email account that dates back to 2002, you can imagine how many mailing lists you're on and how much junk mail you get uh, to that account. And so it's an exercise usually multiple times a day to go in and clean out all the, the junk mail in addition to the ones that you actually do want to hold on to. But I noticed as I was reading my email, online, I was using a desktop computer, that while I was reading email, in the sidebar, Yahoo was feeding me ads, which they've been doing for a while. But I noticed for the first time, and maybe it had been going on a lot longer, I noticed that the ads that Yahoo was feeding me as I was reading my email were relevant to the material that was in my Yahoo emails. 
So it clicked with me for the first time. And again, I don't know how long it's been going on, but it clicked with me that Yahoo, Yahoo's robots were reading my email, determining what might be of interest to me, and then selling that information to advertisers to serve me ads. So if I had a an email from TripAdvisor about, you know, something going on in Yellowstone National Park, um, you know, I might see ads coming up for lodging options in Yellowstone National Park or camping gear or whatever. But I was I was upset that Yahoo was essentially reading my email and then using that information against me to try and market products to me and selling that information, you know, to profit off of what was in my, what I was considered to be my private email. And that got me thinking that I might want to get away from using Yahoo as an email provider. And so I've been working for the last month doing research and come up with different options. And I finally decided I I was going to, you know, privatize my email, not radically. I'm not going to go, you know, end to end encryption because End-to-end encryption only really is useful if the people you're sending emails to and receiving emails from are also using encryption. If if they're not using it, then it's of little use to you. And, enc- and encryption is always cumbersome. But I decided I would privatize my email by migrating it to a service that you actually pay for, okay, getting away from the free email model. And I found a company that has been in business for quite a, th- quite a long time. Um, it's a pay service. And uh, they promise they don't scan your email, they don't read it, they don't send it, they don't uh, sell the data to outside parties. You know, they give you actual rights to privacy, unlike Gmail or Yahoo Mail, who basically assert ownership of all the data that you have in your emails. Um, this company, uh, you know, leaves the ownership of the information in my emails to me and considers it to be private to me. And as an added bonus, I was able to buy my own, you know, a personal domain. So, and I could create my own email address in my personal domain. And now, so now I, me and my wife both have email addresses that can follow us for the rest of our lives if we choose to. And if we get tired of this one company, we, we own the domain name of our email so we can move it to another service and our family and friends and others who send us emails, um, it would be completely transparent to them if a, if a bit of an inconvenience to us when we decide to move around. But the key point I want to make you know, to, to you. Um, and this is something that, that I read on a website that I frequent daily. It's called instapundit.com. I N S T A P U N D I T.com. Um, it's a libertarian slash conservative leaning, um, blog, traditional blog. Glenn Reynolds runs it. Uh, he's a university of Tennessee law professor and he's been doing it since just prior to nine 11, I believe. And I've been reading it basically since then. So he puts lots of good news stories up there. But one of the little themes that the stories he's posted there over the years has carried is that uh, uh, when it comes to Google and Facebook and Yahoo and these other companies out there, uh, you are not the customer. You are not a customer of Google or Facebook or Yahoo. You are the product that they are selling to their customers. Okay. They're learning, they're gathering every bit of, they're, they're giving you quote unquote free services, free email, free document uh, storage, free news, free search, you know, anything, anything they can, that they can do to hold your interest and keep you on their platform. They give it to you for, for quote unquote free, 
but then they gather every bit of data they can about your usage of their services and they sell it to whoever wants it. Maybe it's a political campaign. Maybe it's an advertiser. You know, it might, it might just be um, someone who's trying to sell you orange juice, you know, relatively innocuous. But again, it might be a political campaign um, and it could be, could be something even more nefarious than that. So remember that when you're dealing with free services that you are not the customer of those companies. You are the product that those companies are packaging up and selling to others. And we've seen this pop up in other contexts. There's a, there's a firm out there called um, selling a product called MoviePass, moviepass.com. And they got a great little thing going out there where you could pay them basically $10 a month. I think it's $9.95 a month. And uh, you can get basically unlimited movies in the movie theaters. You pay $10 a month to MoviePass and you go to the movie theater and see, I think, I think it's one per day, basically, so, um, for a whole month. And, they, and MoviePass loses money on every one of those transactions because you pay them $10 a month, but they actually purchase the ticket and pay the movie theater full price for every ticket that you use. So if you go to the movies 10 times in a month, you know, they're, getting, they're getting killed on the, on the uh, revenue side. There's no way you can make money on that. There's a joke, and you can make it up in volume, but that's not going to apply here. You're not going to make that up in volume. But they let the cat out of the bag a few weeks ago when um, it was revealed that they have a they have a handy little app that goes on your your phone, and they, you have to buy your tickets through the app and so on and so forth. And the, the it was revealed that they collect all the data about your travels, you know, say on the day that you're going to a movie, and so you've ordered your ticket and so forth, and they see where you go shopping, where you drive around, where you, where you might have gone to eat lunch, you know, all that kind of stuff. They gather all this data, same way that Google does, same way that Facebook does, same way that Yahoo does. They gather all this data about you, and they look to sell it. And they figure that that data is valuable enough that they can take the loss on the movie tickets month after month after month, but but make enough money off selling data about you to potential advertisers or whoever, um, and that's the business model. So that, that kind of came out and they've had to actually, they're losing so much money on every, on every ticket. They've had to scale back now that movie pass for nine ninety five a month will get you four movies a month, which makes it probably still a good deal for most people. Cause how many people go, really can go to f- more than four movies a month. So it's still probably financially a good deal. But again, you're giving up all this data about yourself. So, that's, let's see here, looking at my notes to make sure I haven't missed a big uh, uh, thought on, on the email and the online privacy, and it looks like I've, I've covered it, but a couple of takeaways there are that um, Cambridge Analytica, the stuff that the Trump campaign did, no different than what Obama did, in fact, Obama probably did it better, so when you see the stories about it, and you see all the outrage by the congressmen who take all the money from Facebook. Understand, it's just fake outrage. They're just trying to look good for their voters, trying to look good for their donors, you know, trying to uh, ensure that they'll stay in office for, for another two years or another six years, ensure that the campaign contributions keep flowing in. But they're not really upset by this. They're, they may be upset that it helped Trump, okay? But 
they're not upset that you had your, your privacy violated. That doesn't bother them at all. At all. So the next story is about Antifa and the Ku Klux Klan. This is a pretty quick hit. It's a story out of Newman, Georgia from earlier. Uh, uh, what's the date on this? April 23rd is a story on this one. New Nan, Georgia. N-E-W-N-A-N, Georgia. There was going to be a neo-Nazi gathering and Antifa was going to show up and they were going to give those neo-Nazis what for, which is fine. Neo-Nazis deserve all the ridicule and so forth they can get. Under our tradition of free speech in this country, uh, they have the right to have a parade or give some speeches or whatever. And in my view, the best way to deal with that is to ignore them completely. You know, go there, but you know, you give them attention. You make you make them more powerful. Uh, you ignore them completely, and it'll die on the vine. Neo Nazism. But anyway, the Antifa were going to go and protest that these these so called neo Nazis. And but the Antifa. As is their want, they show up wearing masks because for some reason, someone who's going to protest Nazism doesn't want to be identified. I can't imagine who would protest Nazis and be worried about being identified. You would think that would be something that you'd be very, very, very proud to do. Very, very proud to be on the news, you know, protesting the Nazis. But of course, they don't just protest at Antifa. You know, they get violent. They tip over cars. They set things on fire. They attack people. They violate people's rights to, to free speech, among other things. And uh, they don't really want to be identified, you know, when they're doing those types of activities. So they wear masks. And uh, the law enforcement down there in Georgia showed up at this uh, neo-Nazi slash Antifa kerfuffle. And they approached the, the Antifa folks and said, hey, you guys got to take, if you're going to do this, if you're going to be out here demonstrating, you have to take off your masks. Because here's an interesting twist. There was a law passed down there in Georgia in 1951, uh, in the era of the Ku Klux Klan, that outlawed, you know, public protesters, you know, wearing masks. And of course, this was aimed at Ku Klux Klan members who wore their, their hoods and it was it was a, a chance, uh, an effort to uh, unmask, literally unmask these Ku Klux Klan members, because the idea was if they had to protest out in the open or, or be Klan members out in the open, where their neighbors, their friends, their family members uh, could see who they were, that that would probably hurt attendance at Klan rallies and hurt the membership of the clans. And it was right. It was a very effective anti-clan measure. And why is that so? Well, we know that sunshine is the best disinfectant. You know, transparency is a very highly held value, you know, in our country. If you believe what you're saying, you should be willing to stand up there and say it. Um, if you have to hide your actions and hide your thoughts and your beliefs behind a mask in America, uh, there may be some reason to question uh, whether you, those thoughts, those beliefs, those uh, what you have to say is is worth listening to. So it was very um, heartening to see that uh, Antifa and their masks basically get lumped in in Georgia with the Ku Klux Klan and their masks. And uh, several of these uh, the Antifa uh, protesters were arrested 
for violating this 1951 law, which was originally aimed at the Ku Klux Klan because they refused, they refused after being asked by law enforcement to be seen and identified publicly as protesting neo-Nazis. Of course, it's not just protesting. They didn't want to be identified as rioting and being violent, which is what the Antifa tends to do. So I thought that was very interesting. I'm sure it was really stuck in their craw that uh, rather than taking the moral high ground, they find themselves uh, in, categorized in the same group as the Ku Klux Klan. I thought that was amusing. So that's our five. Uh, that's our five top news stories of the week that I think uh, people should be talking about. People should be paying attention to because I think they are going to matter, you know, and help shape American culture. I do have a couple of quick hits. Uh, kind of honorable mentions that didn't make the top five. Uh, also in the news, um, you know, Starbucks and racism has been in the news uh, in the last week or so. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I just I did find it a little bit of karma, a little bit amusing because Facebook was so publicly um, in our face, you know, a couple of years ago that they were going to have their baristas, their their servers of coffee try and engage all of us in discussions of race in America if you went in to buy a cup of coffee. Because of course, because of course we're all racists at heart and the people and baristas at Starbucks are qualified to begin that discussion of race with us. You know, that was, you know, a galling at the time, frankly, insulting at the time, incredibly um, narcissistic of, of Starbucks at the time. And so sure enough, you know, fast forward three years, you know, Starbucks is now getting blasted for being a racist corporation and not allowing people of color to uh, hang out in their restaurant without having, you know, bought a cup of coffee first. And my wife and I have disagreed on the merits of uh, this whole thing on YouTube, uh, whether the people should be allowed to hang out waiting for their friend until they're caught, you know, before they order their coffee or they, whether they should be allowed to use the bathroom before they order their coffee or whether, you know, Starbucks basically applies these rules to everybody. So my wife and I disagree about it, but the thing that's, that's interesting is that they're getting crushed for it. And, you know, the, the corporation is disavowing that this is really corporate policy that we, you know, it's not our corporate policy that you have to order something in order to hang out in the restaurant, which is putting the local franchises in a bind because now, Apparently, they're going to have to let whoever wants to hang out in the Starbucks, customer or not, hang out in the Starbucks. And if you live in an urban area, you know that you know most most major metropolitan areas are plagued with homelessness in this day and age. Those people are looking for comfortable places to hang out. And if they can get away with hanging out in a Starbucks, they're going to do it. And that's going to drive the customers away because the customers don't come to Starbucks, you know, looking to rub elbows with homeless peoples and panhandlers of whatever color they might be. So it was fun to see Starbucks get a little bit of comeuppance in that regard. Um, but that's not a top five story. That's just a little sidelight. And uh, lastly, our NRA, National Rifle Association membership update. You recall I joined the NRA on the last podcast episode dealing with the Parkland uh, shooting and uh, – my discussion of uh, the right to bear arms. I just want you to know I'm enjoying my NRA membership so far. I got my pocket knife in the mail. When I signed up, I was allowed to pick a free gift, and one of them was an NRA engraved pocket knife. That came in the mail a couple weeks ago. A little underwhelming. I expect it to be a little bit bigger and more menacing, but 
pretty small little pocket knife, but you know, what, what do you expect for free? And I got my uh, first edition of the American Rifleman magazine, the official magazine of the NRA this week in the mail. And I've been enjoying that. So enjoying my NRA membership and I actually feel good about it uh, because I've uh, been enjoying my, my right to bear arms for a long time, supportive of the, of the mission of the NRA, but I've been freeloading, you know, not, not a paid member, not donating to the, this group, which has been protecting this civil right for um, many, many, many years. And uh, if you're out there uh, believing in your right to bear arms, enjoying your right to bear arms, advocating for the right to bear arms, and you're not supporting either the NRA or some similar group, um, I would encourage you to do so. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the American Culture Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about our show, we are on the web at AmericanCulturePodcast.com. That's all one word, no spaces. We are on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash American Culture Podcast. Again, no spaces. And we're on Twitter at twitter.com slash amculturepod, A-M-C-U-L-T-U-R-E-P-O-D. That's our Twitter handle, amculturepod. If you could give us a like or a follow or a retweet or a share on Facebook or Twitter, that would be awesome. Ours is a new podcast, and you can really make a difference and help us grow our audience by subscribing to the American Culture Podcast on the Apple Podcast app, on Stitcher, on Google Play, or on whatever platform you found us. If you really want to be a superhero, you could go the extra mile and write us a five-star review. I would be very grateful. I've also created a page at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com for the podcast at patreon.com slash American Culture Podcast, where you can go to become a patron of the podcast and pledge your support at levels from $1 per month on up. All content to the American Culture Podcast is copyright by Earl B. and AmericanCulturePodcast.com. The views and opinions of the host and any guests, as expressed on the podcast, are solely those of the speakers and not of any other person or organization. Thanks for sharing this time with me today. Let's meet back here again real soon.